If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. And as we navigate there and we get there, Albert Einstein once said that if he had an hour to save the world, smartest guy ever, right? I don't know, smarter than me. Uh, He said if he had an hour to save the world, he would spend 55 minutes trying to identify the problem and only five minutes on the solution. The point of that clearly is in order to find the solution, you have to identify the problem. Identifying the problem is a very important thing to do before you can find the solution. Um, A couple of months ago, me and my wife, Callie, were really going through a very difficult, difficult week. Difficult week in life, difficult week in family, difficult week in ministry. It was just one of those tough weeks. And um, and so I sense that we're weary a little bit. And what I often do is say, all right, we need a date night. Like we need to get out, detach ourselves from some of these things. And let's just kind of go away and just be with each other. So I'm like special date night. I'm going big, no expenses spared. All right. That's my plan for this evening. So after I called in the to-go order at Waffle House, what I did next was <laughs> true story. Best part. She loved it. Uh, so we get the, pick up the order. Yes, we get in the car. And so we didn't stop there though. We rolled right on over to McDonald's because we're going to get some drinks now in the drive-thru. I told you no expenses spared. So we're in the drive-thru and just sitting there. We got Waffle House in the back seat. She's eating and things are just kind of starting to, ah, all right, we got away. But this is a great day. We're in the car. We, you know, this is, things are going great. Well, in that moment, we're sitting there and in an instant, I heard a loud pop come out from front of the engine, an explosion of sorts, and my car immediately morphed into a steamboat engine. I mean, it's smoking, stuff's going everywhere, car's locking up, engine's dying, and I'm thinking, oh no, here it goes. This car's got 220,000 miles on it, it's old, and I'm thinking, it's toast, it's done, right? We're gonna have to call a tow right now. I gotta pay for that. The car's probably shot. We, don't have, we can't afford another car right now. I'm at the point of like, why God? Like now, God, after the week we've had, and this is what's going on. So I'm just dejected and I begin to get out of the car and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to attempt to diagnose the problem in my amateur status. All right. Way amateur. So I get out, I pop the hood. Once again, the engine's fuming, so am I. And uh, I start to try to diagnose. I'm like, is it the radiator? Is the radiator's busted? Is, does it just need coolant? I mean, is that all it is? Is it the, uh, the, did the engine literally blow? Did I forget to put oil in the car? Like what is happening here? And after an hour of attempts to diagnose the problem, I can't find the problem. Clearly, I can't find the solution if I can't find the problem. So I called my buddy, Nathan. Nathan's a handy dude. Nathan rolls down, comes down there, literally pops the hood, looks underneath that, and in one minute, Nathan diagnoses the problem. It is a $3 plastic part, a radiator heater hose connector, and that's all it was. And and I look over and like, O'Reilly's is right next to McDonald's and Waffle House. So I literally trek it right over there and get the part. I run back. Here it is, Nathan. He pops the car in there, puts it on there in like five minutes. Car's good to go. Completely, completely fixed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's two points in that story. Number one, get a Nathan. That's the first one. Know a Nathan, get a Nathan. 
And number two is, if you're going to find the solution, you must first identify the problem, right? You have to identify the problem if you're ever going to find the solution. Now, today, no one would argue that we live in a problematic world. There's brokenness everywhere, right? Even a kindergartner from the school systems in Kentucky knows there's something wrong with the world. There is political um, craziness, idolatry, division, racial division, lawlessness. The moral compass of our society is going south. We have a pandemic that stirred up the fear of sickness and death like we've never seen in the world. Isolation, loneliness. These are some serious, serious problems. And even the world says, yeah, we got problems here. The problem is the world quests for the solutions and faulty solutions. They look for the the wrong things to try to fix the problem. Maybe we need to reform the politics and the government. We need to reform police. Maybe we just need to erase history. That's what we need to do. Erase it. Let's just cause more division into our world um, and let's fix it through education. Uh, It just attempts, attempts, attempts to fix the world's problems. But all of those solutions are impotent and faulty. Why? Why don't they work? Because human solutions will never solve spiritual problems. Human solutions will never solve spiritual problems. Revelation 12, 1 through 6, reveals the real problem that we are facing today, and it also reveals the real solution. For the next three chapters, what John does before the seven trumpets, or the, I'm sorry, the seven bowls, He's already gone through the seals. He's gone through the trumpets. And he does this intermission in between. And in this intermission for the next three chapters, he stops, pauses, and somewhat pulls back the curtains so that we could get a sneak peek at what has been happening since the beginning of the world. An unseen battle between the devil and God's people a cosmic conflict. That's what we're going to study today as we talk about this cosmic conflict. Now let's look at this together, 12, 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. 
Now remember, the book of Revelation, what we're walking through, this is not chronological. This is not what happens next. This is what John sees next, and then he pins it down for us to understand, for us to see. Remember also, this is apocalyptic literature. This is symbolic. If you try to map this out literally and draw out the picture of all this dragon, the stars, the diadems, the woman, the child, the devour, like it's going to get pretty crazy here. So we have to remember this is symbolic language. Two indicators that reminds us this is symbolic is that there are two signs present in these six verses. Signs. Signs point to something, do they not? Signs are not the point. Signs point to something, signifying something else. So that's what we're going to look at. Let's understand what are these signs. We also are going to see three characters in this story, this scene. Three characters. We have a woman who's pregnant. We have a dragon. And then we have a child. We're going to look at each one of them, who the characters are, and it will make great sense to us in understanding the overarching theme of this text. Let's look at the first one is woman. The first sign is a woman. Some would say that this is Eve. The Catholic Church would say that this is exclusively Mary. We know that the Catholic Church has Uh, has Mary worship and exaltation. They think she is the queen of heaven. And uh, so they say, this is Mary and Mary alone. I would contend that this is not exclusively Mary. It's a type of Mary. I'll get to that in just a moment. But let me first debunk why I think it's not Mary only. All right. Now, if you jump down a little bit in verse six, it says, the woman was persecuted after she gave birth where she fled to the wilderness for 1,260 days. I don't recall in any gospels of Mary ever doing that. I don't think there's any story that's consistent with that. So I don't think it's Mary. Another reason I don't think it's Mary is because in verse 17, it says that the woman's children include all who obey the commandments of God. So it's all of the children of the woman. Now, another reason that I don't believe is, once again, it's a sign So this is not just a woman, it's a sign pointing to something else. I believe that this woman is Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. God's true people before Jesus and after Jesus. Now, if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know that Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church is often referred to as a woman. Referred to as a woman. These won't be up on the screen, but listen for just a moment. Isaiah 54 calls Israel a mother whose house is filled with the children of her husband, Redeemer. Isaiah 52 calls Israel the daughter of Zion. Paul in Ephesians 5 refers to the New Testament church as the bride of Christ or a Wife, as he uses that in symbolic language of marriage. So I don't believe this is exclusively Mary. This is the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Another reason is that I don't think it's just Mary is look at the symbolic language around this woman. The stars, 
the sun, the moon, the stars, all of these crowns, these kind of things. This is Genesis 37 language when Joseph interpreted one of his own dreams. Like this is what was happening in there. I don't have time to go back there and unpack it, but basically these stars and moon and sun represented Joseph's family, Jacob, Rachel, all of them, the Old Testament people of God, all right? So this is not just Mary. This is all of God's people. Now, the woman's pregnant. What's that about? Why does she have to be pregnant? What does that even mean? In the Old Testament, so let's look at this. She's suffering birth pains is what we're seeing in the text here. Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 66 calls Israel a woman who's experiencing birth pains. Why would Israel, God's people, be experiencing labor pains? Because they're suffering hardship, pain, suffering, labor pains, waiting for the birth of the Messiah who was to come. That's why she's in pain. New Testament. Every single time in the New Testament, we see birth pains it never refers to a woman experiencing physical labor pains. It refers to the New Testament church who is in labor pains right now under suffering and persecution, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ when he births out the new heavens and the new earth. So in summary, the woman, it's us all right, it's Old Testament people, New Testament people, pregnant with pain and suffering, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. That's who the woman is. Let's move on to the next player, who is the dragon. Dragon is referred to as a sign. So remember, again, this is not a literal dragon. It's a sign pointing to something else. So who is the dragon? Thankfully, John doesn't leave us hunting for interpretations like we do so many times in the book of Revelation. He tells us in verse 9 that this is the ancient serpent, Satan and the devil himself. If all of Revelation was that easy, right? Just tell us who it is, right? But that's what he does here. This is clearly the dragon who is the devil and Satan himself. There's a picture of this great red dragon. He's red, signifying murderous rampage of Satan and his destructive ways. He has these uh, seven heads, seven crowns, and ten horns. That is in the scriptures. That signifies completion and power. Horns were power. This is a Daniel 8 reference here. So this Satan, this dragon, he's very, very powerful. But just so we can make sure that we remain theologically accurate, he's operating on lint and limited power. The only thing that this dragon is allowed to do is what God permits him to do. He is lying on a leash. He's still under the sovereign sway of God in all the things that he does. So let's make sure we keep that We don't have this view that God and Satan are these equal battles. No, there's only one God. He is the God of the devil. There's only one sovereign, right? And that's who God is. But you have this dragon here. Now, another thing we see here is we see this dragon's tail swept down to a third of the stars of the earth. I'm not going to chase this one down a lot either because there's a lot of varying interpretations. Some would say 
This is an Isaiah reference that talks about before the foundation of the world, Satan and his followers were in heaven because they rebelled against God. God cast them down to the earth. Uh, I don't think that's happening here. Once again, this is a, an open interpretation. I think these stars uh, represent, because they're in the crown of the woman here, I think the stars represent the church who were on the earth and the tail of the dragon who is the serpent torments and tortures the church during the church age. I think that is what's happening here in the text. Now, let's move on to the third character, child. The child, verse five says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So who is this child? Church, this is the easiest Sunday school answer you'll ever hear in your life. Who is this child? There you go. Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah, the promised one who would rule all the nations of the rod of iron. This is a reference to Psalm 2. Let's read that one. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So even though the godless nations rage against God, even though Satan is the prince of the power of the air, this anointed child will come and he will rule with a rod of iron, and all of the nations will be his heritage. And he does that, and then he dies, and then he, according to the text here, he's caught up to God on the throne. What is that? What's happening in that text here? That's basically a mini-summary of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's his biography right there in verse 5. Just one, one little verse there. He's caught up to God, the ascension. And what happens after the ascension? It says in the text here, the woman flees to the wilderness to be nourished by God for 1260 days. How do we interpret that again? Let's go back. The woman is the church, flees to the wilderness. We are in the wilderness right now for 1260 days. That represents the church age, the time between Jesus' ascension until the time of his return. We are in the wilderness right now. Wilderness for God's people have always represented duality, meaning it means safe, but it also means suffering. It means provision, but it also means persecution. We are in the wilderness, and we will be there. God will nourish us until the return of Christ. All right? So there you go. There is the characters, the players in this text. Now, let's go to the scene. Now that we know the characters, now let's see what's happening all the characters combined here. You have the pregnant woman in labor pains 
getting ready to give birth. And right there, the dragon, who is Satan, he's ready to devour the child of the woman. Why is this Satan so hell-bent on destroying this child? I think it goes back to Genesis 3. If you remember back in the garden, Genesis 3, after the perfect world was crushed, after the perfect teeth of Adam and Eve broke through the fruit where the contagion of sin entered into the world, all that was fractured in the world. What happened was right after that, God promised a savior, but he also promised to reverse the curse and kill and crush the head of Satan through the birth of a child. Listen to what he said here, Genesis 3.15 the first gospel. He said, I will put enmity, which is hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When God told the devil in that moment, hey, the seed of the woman, not the man, because the man has sin uh, in him and he will infect this child. He says, there's going to be seed of the woman. This child will crush you, Satan. He'll be the end of you, the destruction of you, Satan. So what happened was from that very moment, Genesis 3, uh, Satan himself had only one mission in the world to destroy this baby. That is all he wanted to do. He had taste buds for Jesus to devour him from the moment he was born. But he didn't know when this baby was coming either. So what he began to do from Genesis 3 all the way on up into Christ, he wanted to kill the baby. So what he did is he deceived Cain, kill his brother. Maybe that's the one. Then he goes on and he gets and deceives Pharaoh to kill all the Hebrew babies. Maybe the baby is in there in that line and they'll just kill him and slaughter him, right? Then he goes into the mind of Saul, wicked Saul. It's a Saul, kill David. Maybe David's the one. Maybe David's the son, right? This is a continual pattern over and over and over again in the Old Testament. He also, uh, man, he, he goes on to Matthew 2. Think about that for just a moment. I think Matthew 2 is in view here where we have this picture, this nativity scene in Matthew 2, where Herod, who had been infected with the devil, this is Satan's disciple here, heard about Jesus being born as the new king. So what did Herod do? Well, he set out a decree to kill all the babies under the age of one because he sought to destroy the baby. Right, The slaughter of the innocents is what that's called, or the slaughter of the infants. Once again, Satan is hell-bent on destroying this child. But what happened was God in his sovereignty moved uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus away from them in Herod's destruction. He lives. Satan loses, right? Well, Satan says, hey, I got another scheme. I'll get this son. I'll get him. I'll kill him. I'm going to betray him by coming through Judas. I'll be a Judas and then I'll lead him to the cross and Jesus will get crucified. Finally, I will kill this baby. Only that was his undoing. 
That was Satan's own suicide. Because when Jesus ran to the cross, when he said, it is finished, he wasn't admitting defeat. He was declaring victory. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus was, in fact, the very thing that was destroying the works of the devil. It destroyed Satan, his power, defamed him, defeated him, de- destroyed hell, all that was wicked in the world. Jesus Christ says, it is finished, curse undone. No matter what Satan did, there was no stopping the decree of God that this baby would be born. He would not die until he would die at the hands of God on the cross because he had a mission. And even Satan could not thwart the purposes of God in Christ Jesus. That is what's happening here. This is what's going on. Revelation 12 shows us where all of the problems of the world Come from the cosmic conflict between God's people and Satan himself. We are in a cosmic battle, church. Now, you might say right now, so what? I got to go back to work tomorrow. I got real problems in my life right now. What in the world does that mean? Call it cool imagery, the dragon, the woman, the baby. Yeah, that's great. But what does that mean for ground zero of my life today? Here are a few questions that you might ask yourself from time to time that I believe Revelation 12, 1 through 6 answers. Why do good Christians die? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do Christians who follow this Jesus suffer sickness, disease, Persecution, mockery, isolation. Why do pastors sometimes fall into moral failure or abuse of authority and give a black eye to the church? Why do some churches grow really, really big but really, really shallow? Why do some churches get really, really small and cold like a stagnant pond? Why are some churches drunk on love and lack any truth at all in the scriptures? And why are some churches so dogmatic about truth and their hearts have grown cold to loving God and loving people? Why do Christian women fall prey to gossip? Why do Christian men fall prey to pride? Why do Christians in general struggle with pornography as much as non-Christians do? Why is it so hard for us to forgive one another? Why do we hold grudges? Why do we have such little patience with immature believers in Christ? Why do some Christians struggle with political idolatry and have more passion about making America great again than making disciples? Why do you have such a hard 
time finding the perfect church where the sermons are short and meaty, (laughs) pastor's funny, just a little bit funny, not too much funny, a little serious, but not too serious. Why is it so hard to find a church that has the perfect song list every single Sunday? The perfect sanctuary, perfect lighting, perfect coffee, and the perfect two-ply toilet paper. (laughs) Why is it so hard to find a church like that? Why can't we be like that? Why do people leave the church when they don't agree with how you've handled a pandemic? Why do people leave the church when their feelings are hurt by a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Why do they just hitchhike right down the street to the next church without resolving conflict? Why do we backbite and argue. Why is it so hard for us to practice habits of holiness? Why is it so hard for us to read our Bibles, to pray, and to sing in here on Sunday morning? Why is it so hard to be a Christian and follow Jesus in this world? There are four reasons, four answers to those questions, all of those questions. Number one, God is sovereign. And for his own glory and his, our good, he either brings, allows, or permits suffering in our life. That's number one. Number two is that we live in a fallen world that's waiting and groaning on the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Number three reason is because we are still flawed people because we still have jacked up sin inside of us. We hurt each other and we hurt our own selves. But the fourth reason, the fourth answer to all of those questions that I pose is this, is because Satan is hell-bent on destroying Christians and the church. He hates us. He has taste buds. He wants to devour every Christian in the world and devour the woman who is the church. That's why. That's the reason of why we are in the world we are today. And that is the problem That's the real problem, the cosmic conflict. And I think Revelation 12, 1 through 6 serves as this alarm clock to wake up sleepy Christians to what's actually happening in the world. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Sleepy Christian, let me shout in thine ears, thou art sleeping while souls are being lost Sleeping while men are being damned. Sleeping while hell is being populated. Sleeping while Christ is being dishonored. Sleeping while the devil is grinning at thy sleepy face. Sleeping while demons are dancing around slumbering carcasses. And telling it in hell that a Christian is asleep. You will never catch the devil asleep. Let not the devil catch you asleep. Watch and be sober, for he prowls around like a lion seeking something to devour. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 
6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the rulers against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I know that grates against our Western minds. We are logical people. We want to seek rationality in things. There has to be a logical explanation for all of the things that are wrong with the world. Has to be a solution. Let's find it. The world, as I said, seeks these impotent solutions. Maybe it's through politics, reform, education, curriculum change, protest, hashtags, Let's just change all of that and we'll fix it. And that's the point of this. It will never fix it because human solutions will never fix and solve spiritual problems. There is a real devil and we are in a real cosmic conflict. Bible says that he's supernatural. That means he's not natural. That means he's more powerful than you and me. Jesus in the gospel of John even called him the ruler of this world. Paul, in Ephesians, called him the God of this world. Paul called the present age, the present age of darkness or the dominion of darkness. Satan is very, very real. He's cunning. He is calculating all kinds of evil against you, your marriage, your family, your life, our church. He's deceitful. He's scheming. He's plotting. He's infecting the world with lies. And all of this is happening right underneath our noses. You see it play out in our culture in many ways. The government currently says that a child Their brain hasn't developed enough. They're not mature enough to drive a car until they're 16. Cannot consume alcohol and tobacco until they're 21. But we think they're old enough and wise enough to choose their own genders. You tell me how that makes any sense. Satan is hell-bent on destroying everything that bears the name of God. That's how it happens. That's not just politics. It's not just Democrats. It's because Satan is hell-bent on destroying everything that bears the name of God in this world. The world is clearly divided over race. We talk about it all the time. Is it because we have a failure of education? Man, should we just change and reform police and politics? Is that the way to fix it? Maybe being politically correct will fix it. Maybe the new critical race theory will fix it. Maybe if we just get the curriculum into the school systems, maybe it'll it'll actually fix the problem. Maybe we just come up with different national anthems for every single race in the world. The world's solution 
to fix a unity problem is to divide the world. How crazy is that? That is not a system failure. That is the scheme of the devil. He's hell bent on destroying the church, its unity, and everything that bears the name of God. He's wreaking havoc in our marriages and our families. He's behind bloody carnage of abortion and terrorism and suicide bombers. He is behind the destructive insanity of so-called same-sex marriage. Sowing seeds of division. He's behind the kidnapping and enslaving trafficking of our young daughters and sons. The carnage that he literally is leaving behind is indescribable. Satan is hell-bent on destroying the church. He hates you. He hates me. He hates the church. He wants you to hate the church. He wants us to become sexually immoral and theologically shallow. Don't, don't read your Bibles. Let, let RC do that for you on Sunday. He'll do it. He's a deceiver. He wants us to be comfortable, give little, attempt little. He wants the leaders of churches to be arrogant and independent. He wants our teenagers to believe the lie that they just need to sow their wild oats, get drunk and have sex before marriage because that's what teenagers do. That's Satan because he's hell-bent on destroying Christians and the church. I hope that just hearing verses 1 through 6 today, I hope you see that Christianity is not a game to be played. I hope you see that just going to church, watching church, or attending church is exactly what Satan wants you to do. It's one of his schemes. Hey, just get comfortable. They'll entertain you there. They'll make you feel really good. You'll walk out thinking, oh, I'm doing something good for God. He must love me now. That's a scheme of the devil. This is not, Stewart's Creek will not be a luxury liner for comfy passengers. This will be a war vessel for committed soldiers of Christ who are picking up their weapons, bearing arms, and ready to carry out the marching orders of the great commander, which is to go there for and make disciples of all nations. And I want a war vessel church coming out of here. I have no interest at all in making a comfortable church where everybody just comes and sits and is entertained and watches a sermon. I have no interest in that. We 
are going to make disciples. I have been praying through. I'm leaking some vision here. In the days coming, there's going to be a plan put in place. We've been praying and processing things on how we can turn our church into a war vessel and not just have church. And I want all of you on the vessel. I be- believe me, I want you on it. It's not going to be comfortable, but it's going to be good. And it will end in victory for you. I guarantee that. That is what we're going to be about. This church, the reality is, as I said, we are fighting a real, real enemy in a cosmic conflict. But let me tell you this. I want to tell you Satan's most lethal weapon against you and me. The power that he has to destroy a person forever and ever and ever. And that is the accusation that you are a sinner. That you are undeserving of God right now. And that you are undeserving of heaven because you lack the credentials to get in. That's his number one weapon against you and me. He calls us a sinner. Um, Several years ago, before I was a pastor, um, I I love the Titans. I told you guys I've loved the Titans for a long time, but uh, several years ago, I didn't get to go to a lot of the games, not because I was in church, because I wasn't. Uh, I, uh, I didn't, I could afford to go to the games. I didn't have any hookups. So I just didn't get to go to a lot of games, but I worked at one of the health clubs that I worked at in Nashville. I had a client there. One of my, uh, I became a, a pretty good friend with him. Uh, you might know him. His name is Bart Durham. All right. You know, Bart Durham, the commercials and all that good stuff. But anyway, uh, but Bart was a client there and Bart knew that I had a young son and that we had not been to a Titans game before. And Bart had said, Hey buddy, we're going to, I'm going to take care of you. I've got two passes, two tickets to my suite on the club level, and I want you and your son to come to the game. And I am like a kid on Christmas morning. I am geeked up to attend and watch a game with the high and the mighty, not with the common folk, right? I mean, I'm thinking, yes, right? The crown room VIP club level. So I, I, I think I got there like way before Bart did. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're there early and we're pumped and, and I, I start to navigate around. I don't really know where to go. And so I'm getting there. I'm getting anxious. I don't see him anywhere. And um, so I just kind of come up through the gate. And I'm like, oh, just try to walk through here. I get stopped in a heartbeat. Hey, hey, hold up. Where are you going? Uh, going to the club level? No, you're not. You don't have the credentials to get in here, buddy. You don't have the pass around your neck. You, don't, you, you, don't ha- you can't get in. And the reality was she was right. I didn't have a pass. I didn't have the credentials to get in. So I'm here halted here. I got nothing to do here. She's a little bit demeaning to me. Doesn't make me feel like I'm lower class. Can't get in. And then in that moment, right about, uh, just right after that happened, Bart Durham comes up behind me, meets me, walks through the gate, slaps down the ticket, slaps down his credentials, and he says, it's okay, they're with me. They're with me. And I walked right through that gate, and I smiled at that lady. I was like, yes! I'm in the crown room, all the food, the drinks that I can enjoy. It's awesome, right? Church, when Jesus Christ calls you up 
to the heavenly places. When you try to enter in to the court of heaven, Satan is going to be there and he's going to say, you can't get in here. You don't have the credentials. And he's right. Because me and you are sin-stained. We have not merited salvation. We're unworthy to God. All of our rags are worthless rags, works. We can't get in. No matter what we do, we cannot enter into the crown room of heaven. And in that moment, for all of those who trust in Christ's work, his finished work, his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his perfect resurrection. For all who trust by faith alone and Christ alone, he stands right beside you, slaps down his credentials and says, it's okay, they're with me. They're with me. And you can walk on into the heavenly courts. You can smile at that devil right in his face and you walk on right by and enter into the praise and thanksgiving of God in his courts forever. That's the gospel. So the most important question that I could ever ask you, are you trusting in your own credentials to get into heaven, to be right with God? My works, my giving, my humanitarian efforts through blood cross, goodwill, helping old people across the road, giving the guy out of the quarter of the interstate 20 bucks, going to church, being baptized, praying a prayer. All of those things are trusting in you to be right with God. And everyone who trusts in themselves on that day will be denied the kingdom of God. Only those who have trusted in Christ will get the kingdom of God and all of its glory. Have you trusted in Christ? If you have, praise God. When I say that in that story, you're like, yes, right? No accusation against me. Satan's got nothing on me. Sin was all he had and I am a sinner, but I have a great savior. You're like, yes, some of you, you're not yesing and you're not amening because you don't know. I'm telling you what, if that doesn't make you explode with glory and zeal for the Lord, then you may not know today if you actually have an advocate in Jesus Christ. I want you to know this Jesus. This is the beautiful invitation. So if you want to know Christ, to trust in him in your life, Man, please stick around and talk to us for just a moment today. You can mark it on your card. You can stop up on your way out. Just a quick word. We have to do it all today, but man, don't walk away. This is not just this decision that you privatize in your life. We're called to publicly proclaim and profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. So some of you maybe need to do that today for the first time. I'd love to see you. The rest of you, church, we're going to be talking about in the days ahead how we fight, not for victory, but we're fighting from victory. He has been defeated and defanged, 
And we were going to learn how to fight on this war vessel that we are sitting on today. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are an incredible God who doesn't keep things hidden from your people. We couldn't see. We don't see what's happening in the world. But you called up your servant John to the unseen to give him seen things. He would pin them for us to help us to understand that there's actually a cosmic battle that's happening with a real church, the real dragon, but a real dragon slayer who is Jesus. Jesus, thank you for slaying that dragon on our behalf. We don't have to be dragon slayers because you are. Praise be to God in Jesus' name. Amen.